Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen, ladies. Appreciate that. When we get to heaven... Uh, we will not be able to boast of anything that we've done. That's not our entrance, is it? We don't claim any merit of our own, but it will be because of His amazing grace. We're there because of the grace of God, the free gift of salvation that He offers freely to all men. hope you've partaken of that, chosen Christ as your Savior. We are studying, at least before Christmas, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians, so find your... Uh, place in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Today, this may surprise you. This sermon may surprise some of us independent fundamental Baptists. What are we known for? Well, we're known for our coats and ties, our short hair, slacks, uh, not so much for our slacks, but for our dresses and blouses and our squared off shoulders, our militancy and our rules. Boy, do we have rules. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, addresses Christian liberty. In fact, chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, the idea of Christian freedoms or Christian liberties will be examined. And I trust this will be a blessing to your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and since it's a short chapter, let's go ahead and read the whole, the whole chapter, 13 verses. Now, Paul says, as touching things offered unto idols. They had written him a letter uh, and asked him a bunch of questions. We know that all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. In other words, if anybody loves God, that same spirit of love ought to be evidence in his heart. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, idol food. We don't know much about that in our culture today, but many, many places around the world still do. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other but God, other God but one, our God. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven and earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but unto us who are believers, of course, in the one true God, there is one God, the Father of whom all are all things, and we are in Him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things, and we by Him. Verse 7, Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, that is, idol food or idol meat, and their conscience, being weak, untrained, very sensitive, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. In other words, food in itself can't make you more or less spiritual. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak, your liberties in Christ. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge or has a background in eating food offered to idols in temple worship there in Corinth, and 
he sees you sitting at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of that one, of him, which is weak, be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? In other words, could that draw him back into an old lifestyle of seduction and sin? Certainly it could. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. This is a big deal. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no meat while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Well, we're returning now to the study the book of 1 Corinthians. Perhaps some reminders would be helpful as we dive back down into 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where we left off. We know that this is a corrective letter, right? What do we know about the Corinthians? Well, we know that they're a carnal church. Now, they're called to be saints. That's the theme of the book. They're called to be saints. We all are. Saints are those that are holy, separated, uniquely identified with Christ who saved us. They're called to be saints, but they are sure struggling with a lot of things. Divisiveness. Remember chapters 1, 2, and 3. Who's the best, most articulate preacher? Is it Paul, Apollos, Peter? And there was a big division in the church. So this book has a, is Paul answering a lot of questions. In fact, it has also the Corinthians asking Paul a lot of questions. And really, Paul addresses these matters. The church at Corinth was divided over what preacher was the most eloquent. Paul reminds them in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it is the preaching of Jesus Christ that saves. It is the gospel. It's not a personality. We may all have our favorite personalities, right, when it comes to preachers, but Paul reminds them it's not about a personality. You're transformed by the grace of God that comes with the preaching of the gospel, no matter what the conduit of that message be. If the message is true, that Christ alone saves, then it's a good Christ-centered, not personality-driven message. By the way, I think most of us, I I don't know, maybe you have your favorite um, internet preacher or TV preacher. I think most folks love David Jeremiah. What's not to like about a preacher with two biblical names? I mean, uh, but there's something about a TV ministry that can't provide you the accountability, the encouragement, the exhortation that comes being in a local church. And so Paul says, don't be worried about person. Love the preacher that you have. Oh, that was weak. (laughs) There was a man that kept following back in the day, a famous preacher by the name of Dr. Howard Hendricks of Dallas Seminary around. He just loved Dr. Howard he drove a thousand miles in his station wagon to hear a seminar by Dr. Howard Henry. Just built him up there in Dallas, and uh, kind of chided by Dr. Hendricks. He looked at him and said lovingly, "He says, go back home and follow Christ in your local church. Love those people, and love the friends of yours in your own backyard. Build that." And so we are laborers together. Paul encourages them. Not to be divided over personalities, but to strive together, not with one another, strive together for the gospel's sake. Serving, teaching, caring for one another as we ought to in the local body. And so Paul actually says, we came to you and we came in humility. As apostles, follow our example. We gave up a lot of of privileges to serve you. We really did. We didn't take a wage from you. We served 
He was a tent maker, Paul was, in order to serve the needs of the church. Chapter 5, um, he asked the, the, the church this question, if you remember, why are you such an immoral crowd? Why are you allowing a known immoral person to flaunt his lifestyle in your church? He says, don't keep company. Love that one, but don't allow his, his lifestyle as leaven to filter through the church. Don't let him flaunt the lifestyle as an incestuous lifestyle. You need to put him out. The purity of the church matters. Chapter 6, he's asking the question to them, why are you going to court? Remember that? Why are you going to court with one another? Is there not anybody within the church context who is able to discern between matters of division? That was chapter 6. Why are you going to court? There ought to be spiritually mature folks within the church, elders and leaders, deacons who can uh, adjudicate the problems. Don't, don't you know, this was a shocking statement to all of the folks there, don't you know, believers, that one day you will stand trial over the angels? So you ought to handle the trouble that you have amongst yourselves. I just got my first ever uh, jury uh, duty notice this week. I love that. So how many of you have served on jury duty sometime? It's my day. It's coming, I think, in February. But uh, I think, uh, but uh, he's saying to them, listen, you ought to be able not only to handle these things because of your spiritual maturity, but one day understand that you will stand in judgment along with the Lord over the angels. Chapter 7, they begin to ask Paul some questions. In fact, there's a letter written from the church taken by the household of Chloe to Paul who's in prison, and Paul's writing this letter to correct many of these things. In fact, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote to me. They asked Paul about, in chapter 7, a very, really a very practical chapter about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage. And Paul becomes very pointed, practical about things. He says to the single, there are many advantages to singleness, namely, more time dedicated to the service of the Lord. And then he says to the married, if someone is married to, to someone who is an unbeliever and they decide to walk away because of the faith of the Christian in that marriage, don't fight that one. Let that one go, chapter 7, verse, or chapter 7, verse 15. And so there, again, the, the following statement, that one is no longer bound. But if that person who is not a believer is okay to stay within the context of that marriage and is fine with that, that's even better because there may be an opportunity for that one who is saved to have an influence on the life of the unsaved. So try to, try to preserve that marriage. All that was B.C., before Christmas. That's where we've come, and now we're here in chapter 8 looking at a very exciting and I think it, it, it just really enlightening chapter on Christian freedom or the proper stewardship of our maturity as Christians. Every so often, every so often you'll hear on the news about a two or three or four-year-old that finds a weapon in uh, their house and discharges it and uh, either injures, maims, or kills a sibling. It's accidentally discharged and it kills a brother or sister. And what is your response to that? We're going to talk about your stewardship of your Christian maturity. Often when I hear about that on the news, 
there is that emotional reaction. And uh, what do we do? Well, there's all kinds of responses. Uh, potentially, we blame the child, certainly not. The maker of the gun, the bullet, the culture that makes such a weapon necessary. Do we blame the parent? Often the problem is a negligent or forgetful parent. But I do believe, in, in terms of the principle of maturity, there is a reason. There's a reason we don't give a loaded rifle to a three-year-old, right? And don't say, well, it's too heavy for them. <laughs> and there's a reason we don't give car keys to a five-year-old. And don't say it's because their feet can't touch the pedals. Why? It's because they lack maturity. Do you know God places upon us who are, I say us, those of you who are spiritually mature, a responsibility. And the responsibility is to respond correctly in spite of all your experience and knowledge to those who are not as far along as you are. So it's really not about how much you know, but how you exercise that knowledge in wisdom, right? Some of you would consider yourself mature. Now, there is a difference between being around the church and around your Bible and around uh, education spiritually and being mature. Did you know that? There is. You can be 80 years old, perhaps spiritually, but only 12 years smart, if you know what I mean. How many of you husbands, maybe you don't want to admit to this, how many of you husbands have had your wife look at you somewhere in your married life and say, it is time for you to grow up. Yeah, thank you for that honesty. My hand is up. And so it is, our, our maturity in Christ, and Paul is talking to those who have now at least five years of spiritual maturity, some are even more than that, who have come to the church, and their response to those who are getting saved, coming to the church from all kinds of backgrounds some of them were male prostitutes. Some of them, of course, were prostitutes in the sex trade in Corinth. Others were all kinds of thieves and sailors from wherever. And they're getting saved. And they're coming to church. And those who may have more knowledge than they do are responding with their nose up in the air a little bit. And Paul is going to address that in chapter 8. It's good for us who are independent, fundamental, militant, fighting Baptists to hear this because it's good for us to know. There are just four principles I'm going to address today. Sorry there's no PowerPoint to remind you, but here's the first. The proper stewardship of our maturity is to know that knowledge alone is never enough. We need love. Secondly, we'll talk about the proper stewardship of our maturity in terms of knowing that there are areas in our walk with God, in our understanding of Scripture, that are unclear. We struggle coming to the same consensus about things in Scripture that are not dogmatically clear. There are areas of discussion, and we need deference there. Thirdly, the proper stewardship of our maturity is to know that for some Christians, what may be permissible for me will cause others to stumble. Will. Will. To know that for some Christians, what may be permissible for you or for us would cause others 
to stumble. And lastly, the proper stewardship of our maturity is to limit our freedom in order to minister to those God's called us to serve. That's kind of the menu this morning, and let's jump right in. The first point, the proper stewardship of our maturity is to know that knowledge alone is never enough. It needs to be tempered by love. Now, chapter 8, verse 1, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. (laughs) Knowledge puffeth up, but love or charity builds up, it edifies. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. I like what Socrates, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, said about knowledge. He said, I know one thing, and that's that I know nothing. Wow. How many of you remember your college days, coming home and trying to impress, (laughs) impress perhaps mom and dad who paid the bill in some cases, for your education and my, did you know some big words, proclivity, esoteric. Big words like totalitarianism. I remember using a word on the phone with my mom. It was my junior year, maybe not quite a lot that far along. Maybe I was just a sophomore. Sophomores know everything in college. And I used a word that my mother said, Son, I don't think that word means what you think it means. But I liked it because it was big and college-sounding. I thought I knew so much. I looked the word up and she was right. Moms always are. Well, verse 1 is about food offered to idols. But it's also about knowledge and our response to others around us who need to grow, perhaps, in their knowledge. Verse 1, Paul says, we all know some things. We who are progressing in Christ know. What do we know about idols? Well, Paul makes it clear. Idols are nothing. Idols are just stone, metal, wood, clay. They're objects um, that cannot possess deity nor express divinity. We know that. We all know that. At least we should deduct that. If we make something by our own hands, it cannot be our master. It can't be God. But knowledge alone, Paul says, makes you feel smarter, proud, and superior to others. And that can be wrong. That is wrong. What does the the psalmist say about little idols? And often missionaries going to foreign lands will see these little idols. They're everywhere, from the, the dashboard of taxi cabs to the shrines around the city. Missionaries from America will go to these countries And look at all these people bowing down to idols and offering sacrifices to these idols and say, how can they do this? This is so, can we use the word stupid in church? This is so silly. Don't they know that that is? Psalm 115, this is Old Testament years ago, thousand years before Christ, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of their their hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. Speaking of idols, they have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. 
feet they have, but they walk not. Neither speak they, speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. And so is everyone that trusteth in them. It is silly to worship a piece of wood. Now obviously when the crafters of these idols make them, they make them because they represent some unseen deity. We understand that, but still there is no divinity in that chunk of wood or metal. And Let me just explain contextually why there was this attachment to idol worship in Corinth. You say, well, this is, Pastor, this message really doesn't apply to us in Hampton. I just haven't seen any shrines around. We worship football, but we don't. Sorry about that. Well, in that day and age, and the lost crowd knew this too, but this city was inundated by idol worship. They knew that the idols themselves were inanimate, but they represented the gods that were many, they thought, in that culture. The idol trade in Corinth was massive. They, uh, the Romans and the Greeks were polytheistic. They had travel gods, war gods, fertility gods, and goddesses. They also believed that the air itself was the playground, the conduit of demons and spirits. They were not only polytheistic, but they were polydemonistic. They thought that demons and evil spirits accessed your spirit by the food that you ate, especially meat. So in order to understand this passage, we need to understand the great cultural attachment there was to this trade. So they had the custom of bringing the best cuts of their meat from uh, their farms and was agricultural society. So whether it would be the lamb or the, the beef or whatever it might be, they would bring that in uh, to the priests or the, the cultic temples and they would take the best cuts and it was divided three ways. One, of course, would, um, would go to the priest there. One would be kept. And one, if there was an excess, that would be sold in the marketplace for the priest, the false priest, to profit from that. But here's what they believed. In offering these choice cuts of their own farms to these false gods, these little idols, what would happen is that the meat which was the conduit of the evil spirit supposedly into their lives and bodies, the meat would be cleansed. Right? So the meat would then become, in a sense, demon-free. So when they went to the deli, there was this whole section <laughs> of demon-free meat, spirit-free spirit meat, evil spirit-free meat. I don't know what the word was back then. But not only was it the choice select cut, but it was supposedly free from any attachment to the spirit world. Well, well these coming to faith in Christ, those growing in the Lord, understood there weren't such a thing. And demons couldn't do that. And the prayers meant nothing. And the idols meant nothing. But there were some in the church coming out of those trades and out of those practices that were very much sensitive to that background. And they wanted to avoid any kind of contact with that meat at all because just the thought of it, thought of it, brought back all these old memories. 
And so they wrote Paul and said, is it okay to eat idle food or not? Isn't it amazing what the church gets divided over? Um, does food have an emotional attachment? Well, yes. And as I was studying this, I thought about this. I haven't been in Brazil for close to, well, I, I visited, but as I grew up there, as you know, some of you know, and so uh, I, I haven't been there for decades. It would probably be over 40 years as a, as a long-term resident. But I grew up there, and, and I remember the foods that I ate as a child. And so now when I go to a Brazilian restaurant in town, or if I eat a specific food, and I'll, I'll say it in Portuguese, when I eat um, this berry called acai, I am transported to my childhood. And my family knows this. I'll take a bite of this uh, acai berry, and all of a sudden my eyes glaze over, and I'm a kid running through the jungles of Brazil north in the Amazon. I just, they, they, they lose me because I'm transported. So food has an emotional attack. And there were some that kind of bundled that whole background, their life and association with the seductive cults in Corinth with that food or that idol. If I eat that, I know I'm going to be transported or tempted to think about, about that. And Paul knew this conflict um, was part of the, the whole culture of Corinth. And so it is there were those that knew. Here was the division. They, they knew that an idol is nothing, an idol is not God, verse 4, and that there's only one God, verse 6, who is the Father of all creation and expressed by His Son, Jesus Christ. Many believed, of course, were coming to faith in Christ, but they had the attachment to the old world. Now, there were many new believers, as I mentioned, that still, listen carefully, still associated, that's a key word, the meat with the cultic temples that they came from and all the pagan rituals practiced there. And they connected in their minds the food with the superstitions of those evil spirits. And many, and we know this from chapter 6 and verse 10, many were getting saved out of those religious practices and they were worshipers of these false gods. And Paul knew that. Paul understood that. And so they, they had this close attachment in time and in practice, even though they were getting saved, transformed by the grace of God, the amazing grace of God, they still had this close cultural attachment to their past. And they were in church. And they were raising their eyebrows at the fact that there were some mature Christians that were saying, hey, it's no big deal. Hey, it's just me. And that idol is nothing. They knew that. And they were trying to say to this group of still sensitive, immature, untrained believers, hey, just get over it. It's nothing. Eat the meat. It's no big deal. There's nothing about meat that, that enhances your walk with the Lord or brings it down. They were trying to just kind of blow over that strong hold that the lifestyle held, the past lifestyle held over some of the new believers. 
And so that knowledge must be balanced by love. Knowledge can foster pride. Yeah, we know that the idols are nothing, but that spirit of, hey, it doesn't matter, no big deal, get over it, is wrong. And Paul's saying that. If any man think, verse 2, that he knows a thing, he knows nothing. Charity it is that builds up, and so you need to temper your knowledge with love. Don't just say, get over it. There are some that are truly offended by the practice of eating this food that formerly was offered to idols. In other words, we must think in terms of doctrinal orthodoxy and relational implications. We ought to be thinking about other people. Others, Lord. Yes, others. Let this my motto be. So the proper stewardship of our maturity demands that we temper knowledge with love. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. Here it is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. His love is instigated not by what we bring to Him, but by us, but what we need from Him. In other words, He, he is motivated to love us in order that we might be relationally connected to Him through faith. He loves us not because of that we know a lot about Him or that we think like Him. He loved us in spite of that, and He brought us into a proper... And that's the attitude in the church that's so, va- so valuable. God so loved the world that He sent His Son in order to bring us into a proper relationship. Have you ever thought about this? Why would God love you? Well, it's because I'm a lot like God. No. He loved you because he knew that you needed God, needed him. He worked with you, saved you. It's a progress, isn't it? Spiritual progression. And so often we hear our discussions in the area of Christian liberty. Isn't this true? We hear it about, well, here are my reasons for why I'm right. So here's why I can do what I want to do. Or we, we see, um, uh, well, here's, a, here's my focus. It's, it's my rights or my reasons. And yes, truth matters. It absolutely matters. Paul, of all the apostles, was committed to knowing and expressing the truth. But he's also very careful that we are wise with our relationships with others. And so... Number one, knowledge must be tempered with love. Secondly, we'll move quickly here. The proper stewardship of our maturity is to understand that there are areas, even in Scripture, that are unclear. Remember what, remember what uh, Peter said about Paul's writing? Some of it's hard to be understood. We don't always agree. Have you noticed that? We don't always agree on every doctrinal point. We don't. Even... After years of great teaching, there are some things that we are unclear about. If any man think, verse 2, that he knows it all, knows a thing, he knows nothing. The more I study the Bible, the more I know I don't know. What is our responsibility? Have you noticed, have you noticed around the church, and I don't know outside of our tradition, I suppose every church have, have these doctrinal debates or these long discussions in the foyer about things that, although they matter, they don't matter in terms of our relationship with God. We have spent a lot of time fighting, haven't we, over things that may not have the eternal weight that they should. And in our fighting, 
often we destroy our brothers and sisters. I mean, I, I, I love a good doctrinal debate. I just do. But sometimes we get, myo- we get blinded trying to prove our point. And we make mountains out of what? Doctrinal molehills. Now, certainly the idea of man's response, and this is the big one, right? Man's responsibility versus the sovereignty of God. My, oh my, have we gone round and round about that. If any man thinketh he knoweth a thing, especially seminary, you, you talk to seminary students, when they come out, they, they just have it all figured out. And there's these fights that we've had for years, and I you know, don't know how reformed you are or how non-reformed you are, but this debate, often I read about the debate, the reformed cry out, God must save you first, regenerate you, and then you come to faith, Ephesians 2, you're dead and trespass. No, cried the not so much reformed. You exercise faith first and then you come to life, John 5, 24 is the progression. But, say the reformed, how can the dead seek for life? They're dead. Ah, say the not-so-reformed, but why are all the commands in Scripture to believe, to seek, to come, to cry out to God if the dead cannot hear, seek, or cry? Ah, replies the other crowd, but God must do the drawing first before man can do the seeking. John 6, no man can come unless the Father draw him. Yes, say those that perhaps aren't as Calvinistic, But that drawing or calling must be coupled with a human response. The coming, the confession, the heart of belief. Romans 10, 9, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There is human responsibility, and there is divine sovereignty. The both are intertwined, and you ought not try to tear it apart. You're not smart enough. Leave it alone. Man's coming and Christ's calling are both part of the mystery of salvation, the divine miracle of regeneration. Don't try to divorce the two. To do so is to do damage to the mystery and the miracle of grace. You were chosen from the foundation of the earth, yes. But was there a moment in time where you were saved? Yes. Did God draw you? Yes. But did you come volitionally? Yes. Did God decide to save you? Yes. Or did you decide to get saved? Yes. It's not either or, it's both and. So we must understand the proper stewardship of our maturity is that we must understand there are areas of Scripture that are unclear. There just are. And it's, it's hard for me to, as a fighting fundamentalist to, to, to accept that and to even claim that there are. There are. For example... What did God do when he preached to the captives in hell? Anybody know? Were you there? That's a tough one. What about smoking, card playing, movie attendance, wearing makeup, short hair on men, long hair on women, musical styles, Bible versions, social drinking, sports on Sunday? Should I go on? We may have been informed by biblical principles about all these things and the applications for all these areas in our life, it's well to be studied up and come to draw good biblical conclusions based on principles in these areas. 
I have 11 reasons, principles from the Bible why I will never take a drink of alcohol. But there are many that say there's never a prohibition against drinking, just against drunkenness. My thing with that is, well, how, do you, how does a drunkard become a drunkard? It starts by becoming a drinkard. But there are fights about things that may not... How did the people, <laughs> Baptists, how did the people in Corinth, just a question for you, if every time the, the Bible uses the word wine, it's always non-intoxicating grape juice, how did they get drunk at the Lord's table? Just a question. You see, we can form conclusions and dogmatic positions, but let's be careful to apply grace to our studies. There are many that have not come or progressed to the point you have, perhaps, in their preferences or even convictions. Would you die? There may be some in our church that would die over a virgin. Take me to a hill and crucify me. I will never, ever use any other version. And there are others that are benefited by, even from good biblical families of text are benefited by some modern versions. Are you ready to fight over that? Are you ready to die on that hill? And so you say, Pastor, we don't offer food, so this message really isn't for us. We don't offer food to idols. We don't even have that issue anymore. Go on to chapter 9. <laughs> but we do have our cultural battles. And it is very clear from the Bible what we ought to say about stealing and blasphemy and covetousness and laziness and murder, adultery. But there are many churches that end up fighting endless battles over things and issues where the Bible is not absolutely clear. And some of us will arrive in heaven. I'm going to get quiet in here. And maybe we're going to arrive there with the right Bible under our hand and perhaps some some hobby horse that we have been uh, training all of our lives. See, Lord, see my hobby horse? I'm bringing him to heaven with me. And I got the right Bible to prove it. And the Lord will ask us, so what did you do to win one soul to Christ? What did you do to disciple one friend? What have you done to edify the believers? It's okay to know what you know, but be careful that that doesn't become six times in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, you are puffed up. <laughs> you know what you know, but you don't know how to apply it with love to others. Number three, we must know that there are areas, number two, in which the Bible's not dogmatic or clear, but don't make much out of little. Thirdly, and I must continue hurrying on. This key point is so vital. It's a little bit longer. Here it is. We must accept that the proper stewardship of our maturity is to understand that what may be permissible for me could cause another to stumble. I should probably read that again. We must accept that the proper stewardship of our maturity is to understand that what may be permissible for me may cause another to stumble. Verses 1 through 6, we know that idols are just pieces of clay, wood, precious stone. We know that there's one God. But verse 7 says, Howbeit there is not in every man 
that knowledge, Paul introduces another principle in verse 7. And it is that uh, not everybody or have the same level of consciousness about things, the same response to things as you do. But didn't he just say in chapter 8, verse 1, we all have knowledge. Now verse 7, howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. What does he mean by that? Is there really knowledge in everyone? Well, I think everyone knew that these little idols couldn't speak or live, but there were some, as I mentioned earlier, that were attached to the culture of idol worship, and it had a different impact on their conscience and their walk with the Lord than than others who perhaps didn't have that close affiliation or association to the idol trade, both in the same church, both saved. One sees any connection with idol meat as wrong, sinful, while the other says it's no big deal. That's what Paul is saying. There are some, verse 7, that don't have that sort of consciousness or knowledge about that meat. You could eat it and not be affected spiritually, but there are some that can't get there because of their background. I am not saying, and I want you to listen carefully here, I'm not saying that all music, all clothing styles, all use of um, perhaps intoxicating fluids, all dancing, all movies are amoral. I'm not saying that at all or inconsequential. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what you believe about drinking or dancing or smoking. I'm not saying that at all. And I think you know my heart. You know me well enough to know that I have high standards. But what I am saying is we have to put the emphasis where God wants us to put the emphasis. And In and, and Matthew, we're told it's not what goes into your body, right? Uh, that defi- It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Uh, there's a vast difference, I do believe, in terms of just meat offered to idols or a miniskirt, rock concert, immodesty, immoral styles of worship are clearly wrong. In fact, remember Moses when he came down from the mountain after spending those days with the Lord, he had the tablets of the, of the commandments in his hand, and he, hear, he says, I hear the noise. And Joshua says, it's not the noise of battle, it's the noise of singing. That noise has come to a lot of churches. It's, uh, it's an immoral, lewd, seductive, almost sexually charged style of singing that really elicits the wrong spirit. And we know there's different styles of music. In Exodus chapter 32, the noise of them that sing do I hear, and it's not worshipful singing. Well, the point Paul is pressing here is that for the sake of conscience, don't impose or exercise your freedoms in Christ as a mature believer to the destruction of the more sensitive brother. Your maturity may allow you to live next to a casino on Bourbon Street. Maybe so. Never be affected, while others would immediately be drawn into sin by that. Be careful about that. Be careful about your calloused or kind of casual approach to areas where you maybe have grown in grace. That doesn't affect you as much anymore. It has no attachment for you to evil lifestyle. Be careful because around you, there may be some immature believers. It's important, isn't it, that we lead a life that doesn't cause someone to sin. In fact, as you look at the chapter, 
Take heed, verse 9, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak or uninformed. For if any man see you, he has knowledge about his faith in Christ, and he sees you sitting at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him that is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols, to go back into and be tripped or stumbled back into that lifestyle? One last thought. Knowledge needs love to temper it. Not all areas of Scripture have equal force or clarity. Thirdly, what your conscience may allow, others may condemn or find offensive. And then lastly, and this is so important, one final thought, the proper stewardship of our maturity in Christ is to limit, to limit our freedom and liberty in order to minister to others effectively. It's a great verse, verse 14, the end of this chapter, or excuse me, verse 13, Wherefore, if meat offered to idols, and my eating it would make my brother to offend, I will eat no more flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Instead of saying, well, I have my reasons. It's no big deal to go there, do that. I'm going to wear what I want to, go what I want. I'm I'm free in Christ. We love that verse, Christ shall make you free, you're free indeed. Listen, you're never free to sin or to offend others. In order to minister well, I must not do things knowingly that bring an offense to those around me that have a sensitivity to something that may not offend me. Aaron Coffey came to me on Monday after his team was here for special services last week, and he was humble, and he said, I, I'm so sorry, Pastor, because... I had our girls come up on stage here, and, and uh, they were wearing slacks and jeans. He says, you know what? As I looked around, really, he said, they reminded me. As I looked around, I didn't see a lot of gals that had slacks or jeans on in the auditorium. And he says, would you forgive me? He says, I don't, we don't want to be offensive. I said, Aaron, that's a great spirit. That's the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It really is. There's places for um, perhaps appropriate places for these things or more casual wear, but we wanted to express in our church the glory of God and the way we dress and act. And I don't think just like meat offered, you know, type of clothing doesn't commend you or not commend you to God. Obviously, modesty is a biblical principle. I said, Aaron, there are many in our church that wear slacks. That's not, that's not a stumbling block for us, but I appreciate your heart. You see that? I appreciate your heart, your sensitivity. That's the point Paul is mentioning here. And, and, and so I said, appreciate that, your willingness to limit your freedom so not to offend. He was practicing 1 Corinthians 8, 13. One of um, their team members preached from the ESV uh, on, in chapel. And, and Jeremiah chapter 2, and it gave wonderful clarity on some Words that perhaps were a little more archaic or obsolete in the King James. And, and yet there are some I know that really get offended by any other translation than the King James. And, and, I, and I told him that. I said, I appreciate that. And he said, well, even there, we want to be sensitive. Sorry we didn't ask you about that. And I said, no, for years, Aaron. 
for the first six years of my ministry, I preached from the New King James, same family of text that the King James comes from. But yet there are some here that would be very offended by that. I said, listen, I have learned, I have learned that I ought to limit my freedoms in order not to offend those God's called me to serve. Pretty quiet in here. And that's just the spirit. But you say, Pastor, Pastor, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't it true that there's always going to be somebody in church that has a strange, really, what if there's somebody in your church, Pastor, that, and there are some like this, some traditions that believe candles are wrong. <laughs> what, what, or we had, a, we had a gal that came and played against us this recently in, in basketball, and she wore um, leggings under a skirt while everybody else wore, you know, the, the, the shorts. And, and yet what I appreciated about their coach was they didn't make fun of her for her, perhaps her more straight-laced, stricter standard of modesty than, than they had. I appreciated the fact that they included her and didn't make her feel like, no, you can't even play on the team. When is it okay? If there's always somebody that has a a standard that may be even a little bit higher than yours, when is it okay? Let me ask you a question. When is it okay for a pastor to preach from a more modern translation? Or when is it okay for you to, uh, to maybe wear a style of clothing that may not be appreciated by someone. When is it okay? Anybody have the answer? Raise your hand and see me after church if you've got the answer to that. No, here's what I think it is. When the, in this context, called the weaker brother, the more sensitive brother or sister, realizes, here's the key, realizes by exposure to your spirit over time that you love them, that you appreciate them, that you're not going to override their consciousness on a particular item or sensitivity to a past lifestyle. When that brother or sister in the context of the church understands and trusts your leadership, then and only then, when you sense that permissiveness on their part, is it okay. And so we limit, you think, what did Paul say? Chapter 8, verse 13. Wherefore, if meat make my brother offend, I will eat no meat while the world standeth. That's a while, that's a while isn't it? I'm going to limit if, if, if necessary. And the first council in Jerusalem was about the Gentile. And, and what about eating meat offered to idol? And what a, Paul had that discussion. And there was a policy meeting. And the majority decided that we were going to let them have some freedoms the Gentiles, that they didn't have to get circumcised in order to worship. And so there is often a, a policy meeting about these things, but the Spirit is so important. Um, the Spirit is so important that we're gracious. I want to end with this little story from uh, Harry Ironside, an old preacher, and he talks about this very principle when he met a man from, um, from the Mideast, and he met him at a church picnic and it's a, a wonderful story. And let me just end with this because I think it captures the spirit with which the Lord would like us to minister one to another. Harry Ironside said, some years ago I was preaching 
in Detroit. A former Muslim from India was there who was at the head of a tea business, and he had been brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He said on one occasion, when holding a meeting there, the Sunday school had its annual outing, and we all went to the beautiful place, the park, spent the day together. He said, I was chatting with this dear brother. Uh, The brother's name was Mr. Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, but by name. And a young girl came our direction, and she was passing out sandwiches. And she said, won't you have a sandwich? Thank you, I said. What kind do you have? And she said, I have several different kinds. And so he said, I helped myself to a couple of them. And then she turned to Mr. Ali and said, will you have one? What kind are they, he asked. Well, she said, there's fresh pork and there's ham. Do you have any beef? No, I do not. Do you have any lamb? No. Fish? No. (laughs) Thank you, my dear lady, but I won't take any. Laughingly, she said, why, Mr. Ali, you surprise me. Are you so under law and rules that you cannot eat pork? Don't you know that a Christian is at liberty to eat any kind of meat? Well, I am at liberty, my dear young lady, to eat it, he said, but I'm also at liberty to let it alone. You know, I was brought up a strict Muslim. My old father, nearly 80 years of age, is still a Muslim. Every three years, I go back to India to render an account of the business of which my father is really the head, and to have a visit with the folks at home. Always when I get home, I know how I will be greeted there in India. The friends will be sitting inside. My father will come to the door when the servant announces that I'm here. And he will say, Muhammad, have those infidels taught you to eat that filthy hog meat yet? And I will say, no, Father. I will say, pork has never passed my lips. Then I can go in and have the opportunity to preach Christ to them. Lady, if I took one of your sandwiches, I could not preach Christ to my father The next time I go home. So we limit our freedoms in order to serve for the gospel's sake those around us. Father, we pray that we would learn from the example of Paul, who was careful not to offend others to whom he ministered. And Lord, I thank you for the reminders today from 1 Corinthians 8 that we are to be. Not only know the word, but to apply the word graciously in the context of the church. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be proud of what we know. Rather, Lord, to be humble and loving for Christ's sake. For when we offend, even those who may have a weaker conscience, we offend you. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.